0: I didn't give you enough time, but yeah, we are in Matthew 8 and a little bit of the beginning of chapter 9. uh, And we're basically seeing what happened right after the Sermon on the Mount. So right, right after Jesus finished, we get this, he walked down the mountain and he starts doing all this stuff. So this is going, if you're tracking in the sermon series, we're going from what did Jesus say to what did Jesus do? And then we'll get to what did he send us out to do. A little bit tonight, but mostly in the last week. And man, I mean, Matthew wastes no time, right? Just moving through multiple interactions really quickly. And Jesus has all these, and we get a chance to look and see how he responds uh, in these different things that come up and ask ourselves, okay, what does that tell us about this man who claims to be God himself? So if you remember the setup from the beginning was we're going to look at what he said and see what we think about what he said, and then we're going to look at what he does and see does this match up? Does what he actually does match up with what he says? Can we believe him? Is he compelling? And so he just got done talking about what sort of life we should live as people who belong to this new kingdom, right? He, he lays so many things out, and that's what we've been in. So living without fear, living with compassion, living with utter purity of heart, I mean, living, um, giving to anyone who asks of you, living without anger, all those things and more. Um, and so now, like we should do with people who make really strong, especially morally strong, statements, we've got to look and see, okay, what does Jesus do himself? Does his walk master talk, so to speak? So let's dive in um, and see what can we notice about what Jesus does as he go out. Um, since we're covering a large chunk today, I didn't want to go through each individual story, uh, but rather I want us to look at this passage as a whole and look at some themes that we see about how Jesus does his mission work. And so I broke it down into this idea of what I'll call the three-legged stool of Jesus' mission in Matthew 8. Um, Hopefully that will help us kind of make sense of this. So the first leg is restoration. And that is specifically these healings and this confrontation of evil um, that's, that's the part of what his mission is that deals with restoring things, restoring people physically or restoring the world that is full of evil and, and fixing that. And then the second part is revelation. So this is around he is, he is revealing who he is to people and asking them to consider how their faith should be in response. He's trying to bolster people's faith or highlight great faith. And that's a theme throughout this passage. And then the third one is inclusion. And this is about including the Gentiles, which if you're not familiar, there's the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles was basically anyone outside the family of God or the Jewish people at that time. And one of the things that we see Jesus do uh, throughout his ministry, not just in this chapter, but that's so important to catch, is that he starts bringing in the Gentiles, people who were on the outs, so the Jewish people had thought. And so we're going to look at all that tonight. So let's start with this first leg. That is restoration. Okay, so there's a lot that happens in this short section of Scripture. But notice that Matthew starts and ends this section with these, these passages, these stories about healings. He kind of bookends this whole passage. And so in the beginning, we have this man with leprosy. Uh, and then we have, in the end, this healing of the paralyzed man. Which, of course, brings up the question and kind of the idea of what most people think of when they think of Jesus' miracles. It's a huge part of all of the gospel accounts. And it's really these beautiful moments uh, that are all throughout. And we're seeing when those happen some key things about what Jesus is really about and what the kingdom is all about. And so understanding the context of these miracles Jesus performs is really important. And Matthew himself seems pretty eager to point out um, some context. He says in verse 16, when evening came... Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So this is in reference to an Old Testament passage from the prophet of Isaiah. It's in Isaiah 53, 4. Um, so it's important to catch that. But really, Matthew will show us throughout the gospel that Jesus is fulfilling the role of, of Israel's Messiah. And that is what Isaiah was talking about in the Old Testament. That's what he was pointing to. And so anytime you catch those references to Isaiah, it's important to catch them and see. This is miracles that are being done in the context of something that was predicted long ago as signs for the Israelite people of who their Messiah would be. If you want to check out, I know some of you like to nerd out on this stuff, but I'm not going to get into all of it. So more of the Isaiah passages that are referenced in Matthew. Here's a few passages to get you started if you just want to take a picture of the slide and look at those on your own later. Um, This isn't exhaustive, but this is some of the main ones. And I'm not going to spend all our time diving into that. But the point for us tonight is that Jesus' miracles, his healings here, is meant to be a signal that the kingdom of God has come and the hopes of Israel is being realized in front of their eyes. It's in real time that this kingdom stuff that was prophesied is starting to happen. So remember last week, if you remember the beginning of that sermon, we talked about this idea of between two worlds, right? And so how we live historically in a time period called the already and not yet, which is about there's a new kingdom that is broken in. It's broken into the suffering world. There's pockets of the kingdom, but it's not fully realized yet. And so that is the best context for understanding what Jesus is doing when he does these individual miracles. He is signaling loudly and very blatantly to the world that this new kingdom is starting. And so we should pay close attention to what this new kingdom will look like. These miracles are foretaste of that. So just like we pay close attention to what kind of people we need to be in the Sermon on the Mount to belong to this new kingdom... Now we pay close attention to what God is doing uh, in order to restore the actual physical brokenness of the world as it is in order to bring in that new kingdom. And that's how we think about these miracles. And in some discussions of miracles you might have heard in church before or read um, yourself, you might hear this very common idea that the point of these miracles was Jesus just showing us his power. And I just want to say, here's a few things that I need us to think about, about why it's not just him showing his power, that falls short. Because look, if Jesus really just needed to prove his authority or power, and that was all this was about, he had just a ton of options, right? Given the, the power that he possesses as God of the universe. He could have done the Thanos route, right? He could just snap his finger and bam, like entire reality has changed. And uh, he could have done Superman where he flies and, you know, around the earth and changes time, like all that. Doctor Strange, wave his arms around and, what, you know, whatever he does. I don't, <laughs> I don't really know, actually. Um, but anyway, the point is, if it was just about displays of power, there were so many options, right? Given the limitlessness of God. So why this stuff? Why, you know, why these displays of power that he does do? That is the question we should be asking. And that leads us to the second leg of our stool. The answer of why this is because Jesus' miracles weren't simply about power and showing power, but they were about revelation. So that brings us to the second part. They were about revelation. So you see, Jesus wasn't just showing off. Remember back if you've heard the temptation narratives, a lot of, or some of what was part of the temptation narrative was around this kind of showing off. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that, right? Jesus is concerned with revealing the kingdom and revealing who God actually is. So, the way that he does display his power power is in these very targeted, specific ways that are meant to reveal to us the nature of this kingdom he was proclaiming and the nature of the God who is going to bring it about. So, what are these things he revealed specifically? What can we glean from these passages and these miracles? The first thing that he reveals is that God is a compassionate healer. The kingdom is going to be a place of healing. So when he heals the leper, right, he's meeting a very real physical need. Um, He's showing that this God is compassionate and cares about our pain, our physical needs. It's not just a religion of spirituality and good thinking and just doing the right thing. And if you suffer physically at any point or now, that should be really good news. Because it says our God is a God who sees you and who sees that suffering and promises your restoration, either now or, you know, like those miracles, or if not by miracle now in this side of heaven, by restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what's to come. And that's good news. So same thing when he heals Peter's mother-in-law or the man who is paralyzed saying the kingdom of heaven, when it comes fully, it will mean healing and the end of suffering. That's what it's pointing towards. And until then, when the people on the earth here alleviate suffering in the name of Jesus or not, some people don't even do it by that name, but doctors heal, aid workers feed the starving, psychiatrists and counselors help people, teachers form the thoughts of people in healthy ways, public servants protect vulnerable people. The list could go on, right? But this is the kingdom of God breaking into the world, and it's cause for celebration. So that's the first thing. The first thing revealed is about healing. Second thing is that God is dismantling evil. Second thing being revealed is that God is dismantling evil. This is what all the stories are dealing with, whether directly or indirectly. I'm not just talking about the The part at the end that's an exorcism. Obviously, the story of the demon possession uh, is the passage in here that deals with it most obviously and directly. But I want to highlight that the stories of illness or sickness or brokenness don't misunderstand, those are about evil too. If you understand the way scripture actually portrays evil, this goes back to the garden, the fall, when evil entered the world, something was broken drastically in the cosmos. And there has been things that we are at odds with ever since, whether in our physical suffering or with nature or whatever. And in the Bible, evil is beings that are anti-life, anti-human, anti-relationships. These beings exist in this spiritual reality and they work against God and His good ways. They're not detectable to our five senses, but they are a parasite on what is meant to be good. And I, I know I might lose some of you here. It's not exactly popular in modernity, modernity to believe in spiritual beings and things not detectable with the five senses and et cetera. Um, but I don't think it's unreasonable to think this once you really begin to pay attention. A lot of people think that the descriptions of evil and demon possession and such in these ancient world and in the texts we read were kind of rudimentary or examples of, you know, ignorant cultures doing their best to explain phenomenon that we now classify maybe as mental illness or something like that. And to be sure, we do have uh, different ways of thinking about mental illness and ways to help out with some of that stuff. But if you dig in even to modern secular reports written by people who work in these fields, um, there's some people that they deal with, it's not super often, but that they deal with and they're so beyond the pale, just in terms of they're just full of awfulness and violence and and aggression and derangement, and no amount of the usual intervention seems to make a difference. And yet, for some reason, when they are prayed for in the name of Jesus, something heals in them. And so there are accounts of this. You can look them up and decide what you think for yourself. But I just encourage you not to write this off. if You're a skeptic. Okay, but tangent aside, I'm here to assert the reality is that evil does exist. And it's not just making poor choices. And I think we can feel this in ourselves, too. Whenever you're about to do something that you know is wrong, there's this internal ba- battle. You know, you're about to mouth off to someone. You're about to say something that'll cut them down or you're about to stop yourself from making another bad decision, even though you know you shouldn't. And then all of a sudden, it's like another urging comes in strong and hard. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm still going to do it. And then you do it. You just go on to say that nasty thing or you do whatever you know you should know. And that's on a small scale, obviously, But evil does work its way into people's hearts and into societies. And I actually believe you have to believe this on some level to believe that God is good. Because otherwise, the world we live in, without the explanation of evil as a real and powerful force in this world, is pretty much too hard for me to accept. There's just too much stuff that goes on. I can't chalk it all up to people just making some bad decisions. But anyways, back to our story. So we see this town. It's a Gentile town, by the way. And there's these two demon-possessed men are living in the tombs nearby. And they're violent. They're causing a constant danger to the people in that area. And Jesus comes along and shows just absolute authority. For those of you who get too scared by the idea of Satan or demons, I just think you should read this passage pretty carefully. I, we should take evil seriously. Um, but if we're followers of Jesus and dwell by his spirit, if you read this passage, I don't think you should see our responses just quaking in fear. Because our God makes these demons fear immediately. They know there's an appointed time that they mention where they will be dealt with completely. And it says they beg Jesus. This is not like a meeting of equal foes. And Jesus deals with them in just a few simple words. So Jesus has power over evil, like definitively. And he will deal with evil at the appointed time. And this passage tells us that even the demons there know it, and they believe it, and they reference it. So, you know, who are you to have no faith in that reality? Even the demons believe that will happen, but we doubt that. They're the ones that are going to get the bad end of that deal. Which brings me to the third thing that Jesus' actions reveal about God and the kingdoms. The first was compassionate healing. Second was a dismantling of evil. And third is that faith and devotion is the currency of this kingdom. this is absolutely key. Think about the story of the centurion early in this passage. We see Jesus honor him above all others, and he says it's because of his great faith. And then look at the story contrasted in this passage of the disciples in the boat. These are the people that have been following him. And when he does that miracle, he is revealing he is God. Only God has authority over nature like that. But when he gets up, his concern is not like, see that? I'm God. He's like, where is your faith? That's his concern. His concern is with the faith of these people who are following him. And I think this calls us back to the Sermon on the Mount. Where is our foundation? If we build it on God, it's a solid rock. It's ready to withstand whatever comes. And so Jesus in these stories is concerned with the faith of the people he encounters because he knows that only rightly placed faith will save them from whatever dead ends or illusions they are living under and pursuing in their own life. Because those are the same things that keep us from life now. And I think this idea of devotion and faith in Jesus and his kingdom is a key to unlocking this passage in the middle, if you noticed it. It's where these two people come up. And they say they want to follow him. And there's this kind of pretty harsh response from Jesus in the middle of all these stories of healing and things going on. And, uh, so the cost of following Jesus, this is in Matthew uh, eight eighteen. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders across the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. You remember these two guys, they came up like all excited, like, hey, Jesus, let me follow you right quick. And he's like, bam, just flipped it back on him, you know. And so at first you're reading this and you're like, wow, like, geez, I wish, you know, if I was there, I wish I wouldn't have gone up and said anything. Um, But he says in the first, I think if we're looking closely, we can see he's saying, hey, your uh, comfort is going to be completely challenged. I just need you to know that from the get go. Um, and why does he respond this way? In, the, in that time in Jewish history, if we look back, it was common for people who were aspiring um, towards a certain career path or life that they would scope out all the potential rabbis in their area or teachers and kind of see which one they wanted to follow. Often in order to help themselves gain something by being associated with the most esteemed scholar or whatever. Think of it like now, you know, we scope out the most prestigious internships. I mean, some of us, do. some of us are like, please, anything. Uh, and we're looking for the best angles to, you know, to get something on a resume that will get us the highest paying job or whatever. Um, he says to the first, hey, following me, it's actually going to challenge your comfort. And following me will not lead you to this place of high esteem or what other people see as really impressive. Is, is at least how I interpret this. Don't get into this with dual motives. You're going to be disappointed. And to the second, perhaps even more harsh, right? And this was not a society that was loose on family ties by any means. It was way more extreme than even the most close-knit family culture some of us may have grown up in in modern times. But I think Jesus' point here has to be about priorities. He's saying, hey, to really follow me, I just need you to know you have to be willing to put absolutely everything second, even if that means your top priority, and even if it's a good priority, gets knocked down saying that's what it takes. It's a hard revelation, but I think it's Jesus being honest with them. They have to count the cost. But again, I believe that Jesus reveals these things about faith and devotion for our sake. He knows us putting our foundation on the rock and not on sand is the only way we will truly live in line with this coming kingdom. It will reorient us and it will be painful, but it's ultimately for our good. It's us living as we are created to live. So that's the third aspect of Jesus' revelation about himself and the kingdom. So we have compassionate healing, dismantling of evil, and faith and devotion. And these are the building blocks Jesus reveals to us in this passage about the kingdom and how to live it out. So that, I want to say, I think is why he displays his power as he does in the Gospels. We have to understand that in order to understand and see God's heart. Here is unlimited power, truly unlimited, but is put towards the mission and the goals of love that God set out for. Okay, so that was our second leg. That was kind of a long meandering one. A last leg of the three-legged stool is inclusion. I don't mean inclusion in kind of buzzwordy way that we might hear it used today. I mean that as a theme, again, that runs throughout Matthew and is present in Jesus' display of his mission here in chapter 8, is that he is making clear that this kingdom that is, is coming now is open to people who are thought to be outside of reach of the kingdom. Consider the centurion. He was a Gentile man, first of all, but also he worked for Rome, who was the evil oppressor of all of the Jew, Jewish people. It was the oppressor of Jesus' people. And, you know, the Messiah figure, they were all hoping would come in and free them from Rome, overthrow it and set them free. And then we get this story. Not only does Jesus respond with love and a willingness to heal for this man, but then he goes on to say, Hey, by the way, you know this guy, he has more faith than all of y'all. I mean, what a slap in the face, yikes, you know? And and this is the guy that is part of the, the army that's oppressing. So these two demon possessed men were more likely were likely Gentiles, they lived in a Gentile region. And Jesus crossed the lake intentionally and went and found them and offered them healing. The leper, a different kind of outcast. He would have been a societal outcast. In that time, they would have lived outside the main town. And when they walked around, they were required to scream out unclean over and over. So imagine that now. Imagine everywhere you went, you had to yell, don't come near me and stay away as loud as you could just to warn people off. Have any of you ever felt lonely? Raise your hand. Okay. Imagine having to be separated from absolutely everyone you love. To live separated from people and be forced to warn people away from you any you went out. I think that's a level of loneliness none of us have experienced. And then not to mention the physical pain of the condition in which your body was keeping you in. But again, Jesus is going and willing to touch these people, which was forbidden at the time, and show them as much care and attention as anyone else. Same with women, this is a theme throughout the Bible. Don't come at me, I'm just saying at this time, the relationships were very different. Men didn't just go up and talk to women. Jesus constantly broke this norm in order to heal like Peter's mother-in-law or offer life to the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well. You go through the gospels and do a theme search for this idea and I, I actually recommend you do, it's all over the place. He's called a friend of drunkards and sinners.
1: You see him with the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the ones who are on the outs and brought in by Jesus. Matthew himself, who wrote this gospel, as we'll learn next week,
0: was one of those people that, that Jesus roped in. And so the project of this kingdom is all of a sudden open to the unthinkable people in their day. And this is a key thing we see in Jesus' mission, and it's the final leg of our, of our stool. So what about us? So, okay, hope you're still with me. Like I said, there is a lot of stories. But... I hope you're tracking with these themes that run through these stories because I think they're key to understanding Jesus and the kingdom that he proclaims. So, for us, if we're called to follow him and imitate him, we have to look at what Jesus did and see some indicators for us about what actions we can take and what that would look like. So, I want to start with faith it's the key to understanding our role in imitating Jesus. Remember earlier I explained that the goal of this section of what did Jesus do was to see what we thought of what he did. We hear what he said, now we see what he he does. And we have two sources to consider for deciding to put our faith in him. So you have to ask yourself, is Jesus worthy of my allegiance? That's the first thing you should be asking yourself if you're coming new to this section of scripture. We see this man, this healer, man who touches a leper, who speaks and evil obeys him immediately, talks of mercy and love for enemies, all the rest of the things we've talked about. And then you ask, do I want to give him my faith and my devotion? So I'm in a place in my life where yes is the answer, absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. I read, you know, these stories in the Sermon on the Mount and I'm compelled. And I don't know the answer to all questions out there. I can't explain every pain or heartache that goes on, but I do see this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, and I hear the Sermon on the Mount, and I listen to the kind of people Jesus is making me and other people into, and I'm completely convinced that I want to be a part of that. But you have to ask yourself that question and answer yourself. You have to decide to trust and follow Jesus wholeheartedly, just like the people in these encounters did. As we see in the story of two potential followers in the other places in this passage, total devotion and right priorities are the only way to make this truly work. But we also see that this faith transforms and continues to transform. Transforms how we view the world. disciples are called to view his healings as a way to prop up faith in Jesus, his power over illness. That he is healing and he will heal all of it. We're called to see that even though evil is present and prominent in this world, for those with Jesus, evil doesn't even have a fighting chance. Just a word from him and they beg and plead and do exactly as, as he says. They have no choice. See, the story of the pigs is claiming that he is not just a teacher. He's not just a powerful mediator. He's the embodiment of God and he is here to confront evil. But even in that story, we see, if you notice at the end, people don't always respond to even displays like this of God with faith and devotion. The townspeople told him to get lost. As one theologian put it, the asking of Jesus to leave is a sad commentary, because throughout history, people have shown that they prefer pigs to Jesus. So the question still remains for each of us, how will you respond? For those of us who have decided in a different place, to, we've already decided to stake our lives in this man and have decided to respond to him. The question is still, what do we do, right? I was meeting with a couple of students earlier. I didn't ask them if I could share this, but I think it's fine. Um, uh, they had this question about um, going out and reaching people. How do we talk to people about this? Is it about warning people about hell? Is that what we're supposed to go out there and do? Um, And we kind of talked about what we saw in Matthew 8, obviously, because I was thinking about it and and prepping for this sermon. Because it's not every single aspect of what Jesus did, but I think it's a great place to start with these three things. Because, you know, if you've sat on a stool that's three-legged, you'll know if it's missing a leg, what happens? It falls over, right? It dumps you onto the ground. So I think if we're going to look at Jesus and imitate him, we have to keep all three of these ways Um, in our heart and in our mind as we go out. Sometimes we get so concerned uh, with bolstering the faith of those that we're reaching out to. And that's a part of it, right? That's a part of what we see here. We want to help them see God. We want them to come to faith in him. Again, that's part of it. Jesus was concerned here with people's faith. He's concerned with revealing who God is, inviting faith in response. So when we evangelize, that is a key part of it but we can't forget there's also more to it. When we go out, we are also called to heal. And we may not be able to heal a person's legs, but we can go out, and as now and put it last week in that excerpt from the book that we read, we can enter into the suffering of others and stay with them through difficulty and help them find healing. This goes for all kinds of stuff. People who struggle with mental illness, our friend who just had a breakup, you know, your someone's anger is wrecking their life and their ability to love others. But you go in and you stay there with them. And you pray with them and you help them find healing. Overall, we are called to run into situations that other people want to run out of. This is how you imitate Jesus' healing ministry. And that's not even to mention the extremely varied career choices that people can make that serve others in some healing or saving capacity. Obviously, there's the obvious like, oh, you could be a doctor, which is great, Go be a doctor. But there's also, you know, automakers who design cars that protect people, keep them from dying in crashes. Or how about a welder who makes the structure safe so people who interact with that are not at risk of death. Or cooks who make food for people so that they don't starve. You get the point, you can go on and on. Some of us just need to think creatively. Like, these are things that bring about the right kinds of flourishing for humans. And it's, it's wrong to divorce that from spirituality entirely. Because Jesus was out there meeting people's physical needs. <clears throat> so does Jesus not show us here that he cares about our physical existence, not just our spiritual? Let that be a part of how you view your role in going out. Don't neglect meeting people's basic needs when you think of imitating Jesus, it's key. And then, of course, the last part, bringing people in, inclusion. I don't want you to think about, you know, we can always talk about the way our society leaves this, this group out or that group out. I want you to think about you. Who do you put on that? Who do you think is too far away from God or morals or whatever to reach out to? And I need you to seriously consider that that is not how Jesus calls you to live. Who is it for you? So I think you see what I mean. These three-tiered approach hopefully helps us think through all the various ways we see Jesus do things, and not just say, and it's instructive to us. But we need to keep these miracles and acts that Jesus does in their proper context to understand how we fit in. See, they point back and they point ahead. They point back to the world that was good as God made it in the beginning, when nature was our friend and people didn't die and, and all this healing wasn't necessary the miracles point back to the time when God first created the world and then to the future, that kingdom that's coming when God remakes it and fixes what is broken, then maybe calling them miracles as Christians is kind of misleading. So we tend to think of miracles as anomalies, right? Something that went off in our kind of scientific understanding of the world and the physical laws and such. Remember that scientific understanding that we're looking at those through has only come from studying the world after it was broken. These rules that the cosmos exists in and works by now laid out in science books and sometimes just observations, but they're all observations of that broken world. So doesn't that mean that the real world that God intended is something else in place by different rules? So by that logic, miracles are not breaks in the natural order. Jesus' healings are the only natural things in a world full of unnatural, twisted, demonic, and wounded things. So, they're like peaks into the real and right and good creation that started in the garden and that thing that we're headed towards in the future. So, if you have people you meet who read the Gospels and Scott saying, I just can't believe you believe in something just so obviously fantastical, you can agree. You're like, yeah, miracles are unbelievable if you believe this world as it is, is how it really is and how it was always meant to be. But if we believe that we observe now is a broken reality, not the true creation, while well, we are here as followers of Jesus, we need to have just as much dissatisfaction with the way things are as he apparently does. And have just as much dedication to doing what we can to setting it right. You know, many will see Jesus' authority as a threat to them. Some come in with mixed motives and following Jesus uproots their allegiances, or their comfort, or their priorities that's present in this passage. And the discomfort even of the people at the end story, where they're, they're asking him to get out of here after this confrontation of evil, that discomfort of the assault on evil of this current world by Jesus makes people pine after kind of the shallow comforts of their current life. Like, man, I wish things would just kind of settle down. And some see Jesus just as a threat to their religious paradigms. Like, ooh, that, that doesn't sit right with what I learned in church growing up. And that's fine, we shouldn't be intimidated by people's responses, even if it's discomfort. But again, we need to go back to what Jesus did. On the one hand, we need to seek to restore people's faith. And on the other, and sometimes at the same time, we can just simply alleviate their suffering and help regardless of their views or beliefs, which is a difficult place to exist. What I'm saying is it's vulnerable to help people when they're unsure if you're kind of crazy or not. Right, But vulnerability is just another way of imitating Jesus as he went about what he did. Think about it. As we read these stories, Jesus Christ is more vulnerable after he does miracles and healings. These are the things that made people want to kill him. These are the things that got him driven out of town. These are the things that he told people not to tell about or else he would be caught. That made him more vulnerable. So we should expect that having to enter into people's lives and their suffering will make us more vulnerable, too. Not maybe in the same way, but certainly in some ways. You know, there's, there's uh, accounts throughout um, certain parts of history where um, plagues would take over certain regions. And it was very common for, uh, you know, the people who were trying to, you know, get free of, of these, these diseases or whatever that was spreading that they would literally run for the hill. That's where that term come, comes from. You'd get out of the town because things obviously were super unsanitary and stuff spread so fast and like COVID without any hand sanitizer way. <laughs> um, and people would literally run for the hills and leave people to die um, in in the cities. Um, and it's just, someone's got to go. <laughs> like I gotta get home. Uh, and then, uh, but anyways, the. The the stories um, throughout history also point out that the people that would run back into the town when people ran out were the Christians. They saw it as their duty. And this is where a lot of the hospitals and stuff came from early on. They saw it as their duty to go in and take care of the wounded and the dying and the disease. And I think it's because of stuff like this. Christians are supposed to run in when others run out. And this didn't end well. There wasn't a happy ending at least in this world's term for these stories. They often died taking care of these people. Um, But that's still how we imitate Jesus. We're still called to that kind of response to suffering, that kind of response to the brokenness of the world. So I invite you to join him and join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for showing us in this passage how to imitate you, help us to see you clearly as we read this and listen, help us to desire to follow you. And to make ways um, to make what you did happen in the communities that we're in and whatever that needs to look like. And help us to have faith and devotion to you as we seek to do this honestly and with our whole lives and with our whole hearts. It's your name we pray. Amen.